Chapter Thirty Three of Mary Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Mary Barton by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter Thirty Three Requiescat in Peace. Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Thou thy worldly task hast done, home art gone, and taken thy wages. Cymbeline While day and night can bring delight, or nature aught of pleasure give, While joys above my mind can move, for thee and thee alone I live. When that grim foe of joy below comes in between to make us part, The iron hand that breaks our band, it breaks my bliss, it breaks my heart. Burns She was where no words of peace, no soothing hopeful tidings could reach her, in the ghastly spectral world of delirium. Hour after hour, day after day, she started up with passionate cries on her father to save Jim, arose wildly, imploring the winds and waves, the pitiless winds and waves, to have mercy, and over and over again she exhausted her feverish fitful strength in these agonized entreaties, and fell back powerless, uttering only the wailing moans of despair. They told her Jim was safe, they brought him before her eyes, but sight and hearing were no longer channels of information to that poor distracted brain, nor could human voice penetrate to her understanding. Jim alone gathered the full meaning of some of her strange sentences, and perceived that by some means or other, she, like himself, had divined the truth of her father being the murderer. Long ago, reckoning time by events and thoughts and not by clock or dial plate, Jim had felt certain that Mary's father was Harry Carson's murderer, and although the motive was in some measure a mystery, yet a whole train of circumstances the principle of which was that John Barton had borrowed the fatal gun only two days before, had left no doubt in Jim's mind. Sometimes he thought that John had discovered, and thus bloodily resented, the attentions which Mr. Carson had paid to his daughter. At others he believed the motive to exist in the bitter feuds between the masters and their workpeople, in which Barton was known to take so keen an interest. But if he had felt himself pledged to preserve this secret, even when his own life was a probable penalty, and he believed he should fall execrated by Mary as the guilty destroyer of her lover, how much more was he bound now to labor to prevent any word of hers from inculpating her father, now that she was his own, now that she had braved so much to rescue him, and now that her poor brain had lost all guiding and controlling power over her words. All that night long Jim wandered up and down the narrow precincts of Ben Sturgis's house, in the little bedroom where Mrs. Sturgis alternately tended Mary, and wept over the violence of her illness, he listened to her ravings, each sentence of which had its own peculiar meaning and reference, intelligible to his mind, till her words rose to the wild pitch of agony that no one could alleviate, and he could bear it no longer, and stole, sick and miserable, downstairs, where Ben Sturgis thought it his duty to snore away in an armchair instead of his bed, under the idea that he should thus be more ready for active service, such as fetching the doctor to revisit his patient. Before it was fairly light, Jim, wide awake and listening with an earnest attention he could not deaden, however painful its results proved, 
heard a gentle subdued knock at the house door. It was no business of his, to be sure, to open it, but as Ben slept on, he thought he would see who the early visitor might be, and ascertain if there was any occasion for disturbing either host or hostess. It was Job Lee who stood there, distinct against the outer light of the street. "'How is she? Eh, poor soul, is that her? No need to ask. How strange her voice sounds. Screech, screech, and she so low, sweet-spoken when she's well. Thou must keep up heart, old boy, and not look so dismal thyself.' I can't help it, Job. It's past a man's bearing to hear such a one as she is going on as she is doing. Even if I did not care for her, it would cut me sore to see one so young, and—I can't speak of it, Job, as a man should do," said Jim, his sobs choking him. "'Let me in, will you?' said Job, pushing past him, for all this time Jim had stood holding the door, unwilling to admit Job where he might hear so much that would be suggestive to one acquainted with the parties that Mary named. I'd more than one reason for coming betimes. I wanted to hear how yon poor wench was. That stood first. Late last night I got a letter from Margaret, very anxious-like. The doctor says the old lady yonder can't last many days longer, and it seems so lonesome for her to die with no one but Margaret and Mrs. Davenport about her. So I thought I'd just come and stay with Mary Barton and see as she's well done to, and you and your mother and Will go and take leave of old Alice." Jim's countenance, sad at best just now, fell lower and lower, but Job went on with his speech. She still wanders, Margaret says, and thinks she's with her mother at home, but for all that she should have some kith and kin near her to close her eyes, to my thinking. Could not you and Will take mother home? I'd follow when— Jim faltered out thus far, when Job interrupted. Lad! If thou knew that thy mother has suffered for thee, thou'd not speak of leaving her just when she's got thee from the grave, as it were. Why, this very night she roused me up, and, Job, says she, I ask your pardon for wakening you, but tell me, am I awake or dreaming? Is Jim proved innocent? Oh, Job Lee, God send I've not been only dreaming it. For thou seest she can't rightly understand why thou art with Mary and not with her. Aye, aye. I know why, but a mother only gives up her son's heart inch by inch to his wife, and then she gives it up with a grudge. No, Jim, thou must go with thy mother just now, if ever thou hopest for God's blessing. She's a widow and has none but thee. Never fear for Mary. She's young and will struggle through. They are decent people, these folks she is with, and I'll watch over her as though she was my own poor girl that lies cold enough in London town. I grant ye it's hard enough for her to be left among strangers. To my mind, John Barton would be more in the way of his duty, looking after his daughter, than delegating it up and down the country, looking after everyone's business but his own. A new idea and a new fear came into Jim's mind. What if Mary should implicate her father? She raves terribly, said he. All night long she's been speaking of her father and mixing up thoughts of him with the trial she saw yesterday. I should not wonder if she'll speak of him as being in court next thing. I shouldn't a wonder either, answered Job. Folk in her way say many and many a strange thing, and the best way is never to mind them. Now you take your mother home, Jim, and stay by her till old Alice is gone, and trust me for seeing after Mary. Jim felt how right Job was, and could not resist what he knew to be his duty. 
but I cannot tell you how heavy and sick at heart he was as he stood at the door to take a last fond, lingering look at Mary. He saw her sitting up in bed, her golden hair, dimmed with her one day's illness, floating behind her, her head bound round with wetted cloths, her features all agitated, even to distortion with the pangs of her anxiety. Her lover's eyes filled with tears. He could not hope. The elasticity of his heart had been crushed out of him by early sorrows, and now especially the dark side of everything seemed to be presented to him. What if she died, just when he knew the treasure, the untold treasure he possessed in her love? What if, worse than death, she remained a poor gibbering maniac all her life long, and mad people do live to be old sometimes, even under all the pressure of their burden, terror distracted as she was now, and no one able to comfort her? "'Jim,' said Job, partly guessing the other's feelings by his own. "'Jim,' repeated he, arresting his attention before he spoke. Jim turned round, the little motion causing the tears to overflow and trickle down his cheeks. "'Thou must trust in God and leave her in his hands.' He spoke hushed and low, but the words sank all the more into Jim's heart and gave him strength to tear himself away. He found his mother, notwithstanding that she had but just regained her child through Mary's instrumentality, half inclined to resent his having passed the night in anxious devotion to the poor invalid. She dwelt on the duties of children to their parents, above all others, till Jim could hardly believe the relative positions they had held only yesterday, when she was struggling with and controlling every instinct of her nature, only because he wished it. However, the recollection of that yesterday, with its hair's breadth between him and a felon's death, and the love that had lightened the dark shadow, made him bear with the meekness and patience of a true-hearted man all the worrying little acerbities of today, and he had no small merit in doing so, for in him, as in his mother, the reaction after intense excitement had produced its usual effect in increased irritability of the nervous system. They found Alice alive and without pain, and that was all. A child of a few weeks old would have had more bodily strength, a child of a very few months old more consciousness of what was passing before her. But even in this state she diffused an atmosphere of peace around her. True, Will, at first, wept passionate tears at the sight of her, who had been as a mother to him, so standing on the confines of life. But even now, as always, loud, passionate feeling could not long endure in the calm of her presence. The firm faith which her mind had no longer power to grasp, had left its trail of glory, for by no other word can I call the bright happy look which illumined the old earth-worn face. Her talk, it is true, bore no more than constant earnest reference to God and His holy word which it had done and helped, and there were no deathbed words of exhortation from the lips of one so habitually pious. For still she imagined herself once again in the happy, happy realms of childhood and again dwelling in the lovely northern haunts where she had so often longed to be. Though earthly sight was gone away, she beheld again the scenes she had loved from long years ago. She saw them without a change to dim the old radiant hues. The long dead were with her, fresh and blooming as in those bygone days, and death came to her as a welcome blessing, like as evening comes to the weary child. Her work here was finished and faithfully done." What better sentence can an emperor wish to have said over his beer? In second childhood, that blessing clouded by a name, she said her nunc dimittis, the sweetest canticle to the holy. Mother, good night. Dear mother, bless me once more. I'm very tired and would fain go to sleep. 
She never spoke again on this side heaven. She died the day after their return from Liverpool. From that time, Jim became aware that his mother was jealously watching for some word or sign which should betoken his wish to return to Mary, and yet go to Liverpool he must and would, as soon as the funeral was over, if but for a simple glimpse of his darling. For Job had never written, indeed, any necessity for his so doing had never entered his head. If Mary died, he would announce it personally. If she recovered, he meant to bring her home with him. Writing was to him little more than an auxiliary to natural history, a way of ticketing specimens, not of expressing thoughts. The consequence of this want of intelligence as to Mary's state was that Jim was constantly anticipating that every person and every scrap of paper was to convey to him the news of her death. He could not endure this state long, but he resolved not to disturb the house by announcing to his mother his purposed intention of returning to Liverpool until the dead had been buried forth. On Sunday afternoon they laid her low with many tears. Will wept as one who would not be comforted. The old childish feeling came over him, the feeling of loneliness at being left among strangers. By and by Margaret timidly stole near him as if waiting to console, and soon his passion sank down to grief, and grief gave way to melancholy, and though he felt as if he never could be joyful again, he was all the while unconsciously approaching nearer to the full happiness of calling Margaret his own, and a golden thread was interwoven even now with the darkness of his sorrow. Yet it was on his arm that Jane Wilson lent on her return homewards. Jim took charge of Margaret. Margaret, I'm bound for Liverpool by the first train tomorrow. I must set your grandfather at liberty. I'm sure he likes nothing better than watching over poor Mary. He loves her nearly as well as me. But let me go. I have been so full of poor Alice, I've never thought of it before. I can't do so much as many a one, but Mary will like to have a woman about her that she knows. I'm sorry I waited to be reminded, Jim, replied Margaret with some little self-reproach. But Margaret's proposition did not at all agree with her companion's wishes. He found he had better speak out, and put his intention at once to the right motive. The subterfuge about setting Job Lee at liberty had done him harm instead of good. To tell truth, Margaret, it's I that must go and that for my own sake, not your grandfather's. I can rest neither by night nor day for thinking on Mary. Whether she lives or dies, I look on her as my wife before God, as surely and solemnly as if we were married. So being, I have the greatest right to look after her, and I cannot yield it even to— Her father, said Margaret, finishing his interrupted sentence. It seems strange that a girl like her should be thrown on the bare world to struggle through so bad an illness— no one seems to know where John Barton is, else I thought of getting Morris to write him a letter telling him about Mary. I wish he was home, that I do. Jim could not echo this wish. Mary's not bad off for friends where she is, said he. I call them friends, though a week ago we none of us knew there were such folks in the world. But being anxious and sorrowful about the same thing makes people friends quicker than anything, I think. She's like a mother to Mary in her ways, and he bears a good character as far as I could learn just in that hurry. We're drawing near home, and I've not said my say, Margaret. I want you to look after mother a bit. She'll not like my going, and I've got to break it to her yet. If she takes it very badly, I'll come back tomorrow night. But if she's not against it very much, I mean to stay till it's settled about Mary, one way or the other. Will, you know, will be there, Margaret, to help a bit in doing for mother. Will's being there made the only objection Margaret saw to this plan. 
She disliked the idea of seeming to throw herself in his way, and yet she did not like to say anything of this feeling to Jim, who had all along seemed perfectly unconscious of any love affair besides his own in progress. So Margaret gave a reluctant consent. "'If you can just step up to our house tonight, Jim, I'll put up a few things as may be useful to Mary, and then you can say when you'll likely be back. If you come home tomorrow night and Will's there, perhaps I need not step up?' "'Yes, Margaret, do. I shan't leave easy unless you go some time in the day to see Mother. I'll come tonight, though, and now good-bye. Stay. Do you think you could just coax poor Will to walk a bit home with you, that I might speak to Mother by myself?' No, that Margaret could not do. That was expecting too great a sacrifice of bashful feeling. But the object was accomplished by Will's going upstairs immediately on their return to the house, to indulge his mournful thoughts alone. As soon as Jim and his mother were left by themselves, he began on the subject uppermost in his mind. Mother! She put her handkerchief from her eyes and turned quickly round so as to face him where he stood, thinking what best to say. The little action annoyed him, and he rushed at once into the subject. "'Mother, I am going back to Liverpool tomorrow morning to see how Mary Barton is.' "'And what's Mary Barton to thee, that thou shouldst be running after her in that away? "'If she lives, she shall be my wedded wife. "'If she dies, mother, I can't speak of what I shall feel if she dies.' His voice was choked in his throat. For an instant his mother was interested by his words and then came back the old jealousy of being supplanted in the affections of that son, who had been, as it were, newly born to her, by the escape he had so lately experienced from danger. So she hardened her heart against entertaining any feeling of sympathy, and turned away from the face which recalled the earnest look of his childhood, when he had come to her in some trouble, sure of help and comfort. And coldly she spoke, in those tones which Jim knew and dreaded, even before the meaning they expressed was fully shaped. Thou art old enough to please thyself. Old mothers are cast aside in what they've borne forgotten as soon as a pretty face comes across. I might have thought of that last Tuesday when I felt as if thou wert all my own, and the judge were some wild animal trying to rend thee from me. I spoke up for thee then, but it's all forgotten now, I suppose. Mother, you know all this while, you know I can never forget any kindness you've ever done for me, and they've been many. Why should you think I've only room for one love in my heart? I can love you as dearly as ever, and marry, too, as much as man ever loved woman. He awaited a reply. None was vouchsafed. Mother, answer me, said he at last. What mun I answer? You ask me no question. Well, I ask you this now. Tomorrow morning I go to Liverpool, to see her who is as my wife. Dear mother, will you bless me on my errand? If it please God she recovers, will you take her to you as you would a daughter? She could neither refuse nor assent. Why need you go? said she querulously at length. You'll be getting in some mischief or another again. Can't you stop at home quiet with me? Jim got up and walked about the room in despairing impatience. She would not understand his feelings. At last he stopped right before the place where she was sitting, with an air of injured meekness on her face. Mother, I often think what a good man father was. I've often heard you tell of your courting days, and of the accident that befell you, and how ill you were. How long is it ago? Near upon five and twenty years, said she with a sigh. You little thought when you were so ill you should live to have such a fine strapping son as I am, did you now? 
She smiled a little and looked up at him, which was just what he wanted. "'Thou art not so fine a man as thy father was, by a deal,' said she, looking at him with much fondness, notwithstanding her depreciatory words. He took another turn or two up and down the room. He wanted to bend the subject round to his own case. Those were happy days when father was alive. "'You may say so, lad. Such days as will never come again to me, at any rate.' She sighed sorrowfully. "'Mother,' said he at last, stopping short, and taking her hand in his with tender affection, "'you'd like me to be as happy a man as my father was before me, would not you? "'You'd like me to have someone to make me as happy as you made father. "'Now would you not, dear mother?' "'I did not make him as happy as I might have done,' murmured she, "'in a low, sad voice of self-reproach. "'The accident gave a jar to my temper it's never got the better of, "'and now he's gone where he can never know how I grieve for having frapped him as I did.' "'Nay, mother, we don't know that,' said Jim, with gentle soothing. "'Anyhow, you and father got along with as few rubs as most people. "'But for his sake, dear mother, don't say me nay, "'now that I come to you to ask your blessing "'before setting out to see her, who is to be my wife, "'if ever woman is. "'For his sake, if not for mine, "'love her whom I shall bring home to be to me all you were to him. "'And, mother, I do not ask for a truer or a tenderer heart "'than yours is in the long run.' The hard look left her face, though her eyes were still averted from Jim's gaze, it was more because they were brimming over with tears, called forth by his words, than because any angry feeling yet remained. And when his manly voice died away in low pleadings, she lifted up her hands, and bent down her son's head below the level of her own, and then she solemnly uttered a blessing. "'God bless thee, Jim, my own dear lad, and may he bless Mary Barton for thy sake.' Jim's heart leapt up, and from this time hope took the place of fear in his anticipations with regard to Mary. "'Mother, you show your own true self to Mary, and she'll love you as dearly as I do.' So with some few smiles and some few tears and much earnest talking, the evening wore away. "'I must be off to see Margaret. Why, it's near ten o'clock. Could you have thought it? Now don't you stop up for me, mother. You and Will go to bed, for you've both need of it. I shall be home in an hour.' Margaret had felt the evening long and lonely, and was all but giving up the thoughts of Jim's coming that night when she heard his step at the door. He told her of his progress with his mother, he told her his hopes, and was silent on the subject of his fears. To think how sorrow and joy are mixed up together. You'll date your start in life as Mary's acknowledged lover from poor Alice Wilson's burial day. Well, the dead are soon forgotten. Dear Margaret, but you're worn out with your long evening waiting for me. I don't wonder, but never you, nor any one else, think because God sees fit to call up new interests, perhaps right out of the grave, that therefore the dead are forgotten. Margaret, you yourself can remember our looks and fancy what we're like. Yes, but what has that to do with remembering Alice? Why, just this. You're not always trying to think on our faces and making a labor of remembering. But often I'll be bound, when you're sinking off to sleep, or when you're very quiet and still, the faces you knew so well when you could see come smiling before you with loving looks, or you remember them without striving after it and without thinking it's your duty to keep recalling them, and so it is with them that are hidden from our sight. If they've been worthy to be heartily loved while alive, they'll not be forgotten when dead. It's against nature. And we need no more be upbraiding ourselves for letting in God's rays of light upon our sorrow, and no more be fearful of forgetting them, 
because their memory is not always haunting and taking up our minds, then you need to trouble yourself about remembering your grandfather's face, or what the stars were like. You can't forget if you would, what it's such a pleasure to think about. Don't fear my forgetting, Aunt Alice. I'm not, Jim. Not now, at least. Only you seemed so full about Mary. I've kept it down so long, remember. How glad Aunt Alice would have been to know that I might hope to have her for my wife, that's to say, if God spares her. She would not have known it, even if you could have told her this last fortnight. Ever since you went away, she's been thinking always that she was a little child at her mother's apron string. She must have been a happy little thing. It was such a pleasure to her to think about those early days when she lay old and gray on her deathbed. I never knew anyone seem more happy all her life long. Ay, and how gentle and easy her death was. She thought her mother was near her. They fell into calm thought above those last peaceful happy hours. It struck eleven. Jim started up. I should have been gone long ago. Give me the bundle. You'll not forget my mother. Good night, Margaret. She let him out and bolted the door behind him. He stood on the steps to adjust some fastening about the bundle. The court, the street, was deeply still. Long ago, all had retired to rest on that quiet Sabbath evening. The stars shone down on the silent deserted streets, and the clear, soft moonlight fell in bright masses, leaving the steps on which Jim stood in shadow. A footfall was heard along the pavement. Slow and heavy was the sound. Before Jim had ended his little piece of business, a form had glided into sight. A wan, feeble figure, bearing with evident and painful labor a jug of water from a neighboring pump. It went before Jim, turned up the court at the corner of which he was standing, passed into the broad, calm light. And there, with bowed head, sinking and shrunk body, Jim recognized John Barton. No haunting ghost could have had less of the energy of life in its involuntary motions than he, who nevertheless went on with the same measured clockwork tread until the door of his own house was reached. And then he disappeared, and the latch fell feebly too, and made a faint and wavering sound, breaking the solemn silence of the night. Then all again was still. For a minute or two Jim stood motionless, stunned by the thoughts which the sight of Mary's father had called up. Margaret did not know he was at home. Had he stolen like a thief by dead of night into his own dwelling? Depressed as Jim had often and long seen him, this night there was something different about him still. Beaten down by some inward storm, he seemed to grovel along, all self-respect lost and gone. Must he be told of Mary's state? Jim felt he must not, and this for many reasons. He could not be informed of her illness without many other particulars being communicated at the same time, of which it were better he should be kept in ignorance, indeed of which Mary herself could alone give the full explanation. No suspicion that he was the criminal seemed hitherto to have been excited in the mind of any one. Added to these reasons was Jim's extreme unwillingness to face him, with the belief in his breast that he, and none other, had done the fearful deed. It was true that he was Mary's father, and as such had every right to be told of all concerning her. But supposing he were, and that he followed the impulse so natural to a father, and wished to go to her, what might be the consequences? Among the mingled feelings she had revealed in her delirium, I, mingled even with the most tender expressions of love for her father, was a sort of horror of him, a dread of him as a bloodshedder, which seemed to separate him into two persons— one, the father who had dandled her on his knee and loved her all her life long, 
the other, the assassin, the cause of all her trouble and woe. If he presented himself before her while this idea of his character was uppermost, who might tell the consequence? Jim could not, and would not, expose her to any such fearful chance, and to tell the truth, I believe he looked upon her as more his own, to guard from all shadow of injury with most loving care, than as belonging to any one else in this world, though girt with the reverend name of father, and guiltless of aught that might have lessened such reverence. If you think this account of mine confused, of the half-feelings, half-reasons which passed through Jim's mind, as he stood gazing on the empty space where that crushed form had so lately been seen, if you are perplexed to disentangle the real motives, I do assure you it was from just such an involved set of thoughts that Jim drew the resolution to act as if he had not seen that phantom likeness of John Barton, himself, yet not himself. End of chapter 33 Recording by Leanne Howlett